Hello and welcome to JLGB Virtual We Are Live. As part of JLGB's recent adjustments to the coronavirus lockdown, we have been helping parents and young people stay entertained and active all online. In order to adapt our delivery to the government restrictions, on the 23rd of March, we launched JLGB Virtual, which runs every Monday to Thursday evening. This is our way of ensuring that we can continue to delight, inform and entertain young people so that they can have some fun, learn new skills and make a difference. Sessions include skills like magic, upcycling and coding. Physical activities and the focus of this podcast series, interviews with expert speakers from a range of backgrounds, including famous actors, social entrepreneurs, government ministers and many more. These interviews are run by young people like myself. So if you have any questions or want to get involved, please reach out to us on any social media platform. Just look for Judge BHQ and message us. We have so many exciting guests for you to listen to and we hope you'll join us live very soon. For now though, join us through our catalogue of guests. Today's guest is comedian and podcaster Richard Herring. Sit back, relax and I hope you enjoy. But before all of that, our special guest for tonight. Richard Herring is an English stand-up comedian and writer, originally famous for being part of the double act, Lee and Herring, and of course today for his brilliant podcast, Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. Originally born in Yorkshire, Richard grew up in Cheddar, Somerset as the youngest child of two teachers. In fact, while attending school, his father was his headmaster. It was during this time that Richard started writing comedy and he carried this on throughout his years at St Catherine's College, Oxford University. It was there that Richard first met Stuart Lee, with whom he would form a double act as they started working on a range of television, radio and stage shows. With their big break coming with Fist of Fun and then This Morning with Richard Not Judy. After setting out on his own script writing for shows like Al Murray's Time Gentlemen Please, Richard has continued his rise to become the British Theatre Guide's leading hidden masters of modern British comedy. He continues his stand-up, sketch and Edinburgh Fringe shows and of course his award-winning podcast. An incredibly busy man, he's raising two children alongside his wife, writer and comedian Katie Wilkins, as well as being a patron of Scope and campaigner for International Women's Day, and he has also been announced as starring in the next series of Taskmaster in October. We are so grateful and so excited that he is able to join us this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome tonight's very special guest, Richard Herring. Good evening, Richard. How Hello, love to be here. Thanks for having me. How's lockdown been for you and your family? Are you positive? Um, it, there's been lots of positives. It's been quite difficult. I've got two young kids and um, obviously suddenly having to look after them all the time. Uh, it's quite a challenge and become the teacher of the older one uh, without you suddenly realize how much help you get from in-laws and babysitters and that sort of thing um, but on the whole it's been okay it's nice to be easing our way out I have to say and going back to the world and we went to a safari park yesterday and uh, you know we went on holiday last week so it's it, to, to Sussex um so that's nice so we i think with all these things becoming a parent you appreciate all the free time you had before and how you didn't really understand <laughs> how lucky you were so i think the lockdown's a little taste of 
how parenting is unless you're parenting during lockdown as well in which case it's double double bubble but uh, yeah it's, it was okay and i think there's i think it's seeing the positives that that come out of it and i've used it as a chance to try and come up with new material and i've used it as a chance to start again a little bit with stand up i'm going to i've decided not to use any pre covid uh, stand up on stage again so i'm going to have to write a new act and so i think as long as you try and find positives uh, and I think it's been difficult with the kids, but they've they've got a lot closer with each other, even though they haven't been able to see their friends, which I think has been uh, hard for them. Lovely. We're really pleased to have you on our JLGB virtual programme as we celebrate 125 years of JLGB. We've been boosting positivity and keeping children and their families active, healthy and entertained for 21 solid weeks now since lockdown began, with the help of a special guest helping us each evening. Other than Neil pestering you, what made you say yes to joining us this evening? <laughs> I think it was mainly Neil uh, pestering me, to be honest. Oh, it's nice to be, it's very nice to be asked. I think you're doing great work here. Uh, it's fantastic that you've had so many guests on and kept this rolling. Um, but, you know, it's also uh, flattering that anybody under 40 is interested in anything I have to say, uh, as most of you were not alive when, if any of you were alive when I was properly on the television. So that's kind of uh that's kind of weird to think but yeah no it seems like a a, a good endeavor and, and charitable uh things are always worth supporting i think we're all about acts of kindness here at jlgb and we always ask our guests what they've been doing to help others is there a personal particular act of kindness that you've done to help others in lockdown in lockdown well i suppose um I've been very concerned about the uh, comedy industry and stand-up comedians in general um it was a very sudden shutdown without any warning and comedians are not the best people at uh, preparing for the future. Uh, and so like it was, I think, you know, you see comedians on TV and even comedians of my level where I'm doing okay and doing lots of work away from the theatres, but most stand-up comedians, their entire work is in clubs. So to suddenly have that taken away, and uh, many of them obviously have families and mortgages, uh, so I was very, I was very concerned, and I'm, and I'm just concerned about live comedy surviving really through this length of time away. And I think it will be the last thing to really properly go back as well, um, just by the nature of comedy venues. So I did uh, start the the lockdown by sort of helping to raise money for uh, comedians, uh, trying to encourage TV comedians, comedians who are still earning money, to throw a bit of their money into a into a big pot so that we could keep, uh, you know, the the few hundred comedians um, who wouldn't have any income uh, going and at least until you know various schemes kicked in to help them so we, we did like two or three months basically giving away 10 grand every month every week rather um, and raised over a hundred thousand pounds maybe about 120,000 pounds was uh, not all down to me by any means but uh, it was nice to be a part of that so and and now as we're getting back um, I'm doing a gig on Sunday in Clapham where is where is to raise money for venues which I think is probably uh, the most important things in terms of keeping uh, the business going but it, it's been interesting because I think so many things have happened in these four or five months uh, that I mean the, all the stuff with Black Lives Matter uh, and lots lots of things that needed awareness and I think kind of spreading awareness of all those things has also been important and hopefully and you know the a-level stuff that i'm sure many of you have uh, struggled and suffered through it's been good to see how people power can 
make a difference and make people reassess things. And I, th and I hope young people will, A, learn the lesson of the awful stuff that's just happened to them. And I know it's not sorted out for many of you. Uh, and and realise that by being politically active, you can hold people res accountable for for their mistakes. So I think we need to do that. And I think we need to um, keep an eye on politics in general. And uh, hopefully, again, it's looking for the positives. Obviously, there's lots of negatives in politics and there's lots of unpleasant things happening in politics and in the world. But um, I'm hopeful that just by appreciating things like the NHS and all the key workers and just, you know, like a guy comes to, I live in a village and there's no shops. There's one shop here. Uh, but say the guys who come in vans and sell as a butcher and a fishmonger and just, they've been coming throughout lockdown and, you know, supplying the village with food. And you think, well, we always did use them before, but hopefully we'll keep on using them and use them a bit more out of, you know, that the, the understanding of how society holds together and how many people you need to keep it going. And I hope we'll remember those lessons because, um, and, and we'll remember all the people who've kept us going, not just the NHS, though, mainly the NHS, but also all the people who just, you know, the people who drove the vans delivering food, the people who stopped the supermarkets and all the, the teachers, everyone who took risks with their own health in order to help us keep going. It's, you know, it's, uh, I, I hope we can come together as a nation and and heal the divisions that have been coming together been happening definitely so let's go back to the beginning okay. about your childhood growing up <laughs> and if you had any youth opportunities um you were the son of a headmaster yeah and um, so how was that experience for you well it was you know it was all i knew it was weird i did a whole show about it <clears throat> called the headmaster's son about uh, 12 13 years ago um and it was I was lucky I was at a nice school it's a comprehensive school in Cheddar in Somerset um, and I'd grown up through the whole system and we moved to Cheddar when I was eight so I'd been through the school system before we got to the school where my dad was headmaster my mum also taught me at middle school so I had both my teachers my both my parents taught me at some stage of my life uh, at actual school um, obviously it's a little bit weird and I think it, it there's a part of me that probably enjoyed the celebrity of it and that the kids knew who I was but also there was a there was a teeny bit of bullying though not not really because I think um, you know people were scared that they'd get into trouble <laughs> for bullying me too much. But I guess there was a sort of suspicion around me, and I wondered. I kind of wondered in this show whether that had led me to you know be the slight mess up of an adult that I'd become. But I but all the things that I'm obsessed with, which is comedy and uh, let's just say crudity <laughs> for now. Um, were sort of with me before my dad was my headmaster. I thought when I was four years old, I was as, as obsessed with um, comedy and sexual functions and bodily functions as I would be as a as an adult. So I don't think it really massively affected me. I think the thing I realised was as an adult, which I didn't think about until I was practically 40 years old, was how difficult it was from the other point of view for my mum and dad to teach me and my dad to be a headmaster at the school that I was at. And I was a little bit cheeky and a little bit naughty and he had to deal with that and the teachers had to deal with that and that's an odd situation for them so you don't think about it from other people's point of view I think and uh, until much much later when I think when you're young you you do think uh you know the, I'm the main character in this film and this is all about me and it was quite a revelation to me to realize you know there was a uh, there was an ascension day service at school uh, and uh, my dad had called for a minute silence while we thought about whatever <laughs> we were meant to be thinking about. And I did this massive burp from the crowd, like, and it came out much louder than I meant it to, but it was 
just meant to be a joke that I made a burp at the start of the minute silence. And, you know, I could see my dad getting furiously angry. And then he sort of looked at me and realised it might have been me. And then he had to make a decision in that split second as to whether he was going to, you know, tell me off in front of the whole school or let it go, you know. And so that's, that, you know, I admire him because he had to cope with that and that sort of thing. And he did so incredibly well, I think. He, he didn't he didn't say anything i think he feared it was me so he didn't he didn't say anything and let it go and i think that was probably the right thing to do psychologically speaking both as a as a headmaster and a and a parent um but yeah so it was it was it was tough for us all but but also it was i was had a it was a lovely school i had plenty of friends um and yeah i don't know whether there was all i wonder was whether there was a sort of suspicion about me whether people would um, include me in everything for fear that I would tell on them though I wasn't I wasn't a narc they would have been safe um, but yeah it was it was weird but it was I think again I a lot of comedians either have sort of tragedy in their youth or quite a lot of them have some kind of authority figure as a, a parent there's a lot of uh, clergymen and uh, you know religious figures whose comedians children go on to be comedians and of quite a few headmasters and teachers and stuff like that so um uh, i think it might have slightly propelled me towards this this job but it was this is what i always wanted to do even before my dad was my headmaster so as you said that you always wanted to do comedy was there ever another career on the cards well i mean i didn't think i would be able to do it this is what i wanted to do but i you know uh, when i was growing up in somerset in the 1980s and had no entertainment in my family really of any kind uh and certainly not, nothing professional and um you know when i went to my careers advisor when i was 15 and said i wanted to be a writer and a comedian they said that wasn't on the form so i wasn't allowed to do that um and i had to work in a bank or something was their idea i think uh and so it seemed like an impossible aspiration so it wasn't like I was thinking I, you know I think I probably thought I'd end up being a teacher like everyone else in my family um, and I might, that might have been a better way for me to go who knows um, but you know I wanted to give it a go and when we did lots of comedy at school so I wrote for school magazine I was lucky I was in a group of friends who were just as interested in comedy and uh, my, my best friend is one of my best friends at school was this guy called Steve Cheek who was very driven and ambitious but also very had worked out early on that the important thing about comedy was to try and be as original as possible um and so together we kind of came up with an ethos but he went on to be he, he worked in a double act with simon munry who's a very sort of avant-garde and successful comedian now uh steve has uh, gone back to being he's a professor at university, bristol university but he, he's a very very clever man um so you know we i had this support group when we did you know unusually we'd done quite a lot of comedy work writing and writing our own review we did three or four sketch shows uh, at school put them on sometimes in front of the school and sometimes sort of secret ones for that were a bit ruder uh, and uh, so you know i was it felt like it was moving in that direction and when i went to university i I'd, I'd read a book called from fringe to flying circus which was all about the um uh, the ancient history really of people like peter cook and dudley moore and monty python and how they progressed from student review to sort of films and superstardom. And so I kind of knew that if I would could go to Oxford or Cambridge, that, um, yeah, there was a chance I could get involved in comedy there. 
And that seemed to be the route that I'd read about in this book. And again, I didn't know whether I could get into Oxford or Cambridge. I didn't reply for eight, apply for ages. I applied for Oxford in the end and my kind of history teacher kind of encouraged me, but um, I had to make that decision myself, you know? And so it, was, it wasn't like a definite thing that was gonna happen. I was one of the cleverer kids in the school, but not many kids from our school got to go to Oxbridge. Uh, you know, one or two, and only recent, only in the last previous 10 years had people been at all. Um, so it was like, that was a big step and a big, you know, that there was every chance I wouldn't end up going to that university. But that was, I knew that once I got to that university that I was going to attempt to pursue comedy and drama. But again, even when I went and I got in, I thought, but there's no way it will happen. And, you know, so it was, you know, it was all just keeping on following your ambition, your dream and hoping for the best. And luckily all the doors kind of fell open for me as I, as I, as I approached them and often shut behind me, but we, we were sort of very blessed and lucky in our first 10 years really of working since I met Stuart Lee at university and we started working together quite early on and did, did well and got to go to Edinburgh with student shows then came to London and started writing for the radio and doing stand-up and just you know things fell our way we worked pretty hard but things things we were pretty lucky as well I think with the way things turned out so yeah I don't I think maybe I'd have been a teacher but I don't think there was anything um that I else that I wanted to make you know acting or comedy or writing you know I loved write, write so as soon as I could write I was writing stories and I loved the idea of making people laugh. I loved people who made me laugh. My granddad was very funny. I was massively as a kid into, you know, TV was much more of a important thing back then, especially when you lived in the countryside, you couldn't really get out and see very much stuff. So um, the, t the TV comedians I saw and also things like Monty Python, which I did, I got a record, you know, old fashioned record, vinyl records and listened to those <laughs> and tapes. Uh, and so, you know, I was, I was kind of educating myself with comedy and then Rick Mail and the young ones came out in about 1980. And that was sort of my epiphany where I thought, you know, this, this looks possible. These are just regular guys who are somehow got on TV and doing this madcap crazy stuff. And, uh, you know, you thought maybe it's possible, but I didn't, you know, even now I'm still sort of surprised <laughs> that I'm here and still doing it. And so are many people on Twitter, I have to say. <laughs> So you went on to form a double act with Stuart Lee and yeah. you formed Lee and Herring. Um, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Abby, but Richard, as you know, on your podcast, when your show gets a bit serious or maybe the guest is being a little bit dull, no offence, yeah. um, okay, sounds great, but um, <laughs> um, you ask an emergency question. I've got a copy of your book. Okay, great. Um, I've actually got a few. I've got all the books somewhere. Thank you. But, um, so my... Um, my question for you, my first one, is would you rather have an elbow made of marshmallows or yeah. a foot transformed into a wet foot every full moon? Is that one of yours or is that one of mine? That's one of yours, is it? That's definitely one of yours. Is it? My goodness. Okay, I don't, I don't, I don't think I've ever asked that one. I've written so many of them that I don't uh, remember. So if, <laughs> an elbow made of marshmallow, a foot that transforms into a wet foot? Or, yeah. or is it? Yeah. I mean, I'd be quite interested with the wear foot, really. I like marshmallow, but it's you can't actually, you can't, you can't get your elbow in your mouth, can you? <laughs> That's one of the things you can't do. Yeah, you could pick it off. Of um, but I think yeah. for the novelty value of having a wear foot, depending how much, it couldn't do that much damage, could it, a wear foot? Does like it turn into a wolf or does it turn, does it turn into a wolf's foot? foot? Sorry? No, it, it turns into a wolf. It turns into an actual wolf. Yeah. 
What a yeah. stupid question. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I would like that because you know it'd be company, wouldn't it? And it'd be scare. You could scare people off with your wear foot. Would it might bite Fair you? Enough. Might bite you, don't it? Might might bite you on the <laughs> yeah. foot. Yeah, okay. I'll go for it though. <laughs> yeah. I'm prepared to take the chance. Um, fair enough. Um, and my next question is, what's the best thing that you've ever found down the back of your sofa? Yeah, I haven't found very much. I used to hide, um, I used to steal chocolates off the tree for my nephews and nieces um, when they were about four or five. And, and I would then I told them to hide the evidence down the sofa rather than throw it in the bin so it wouldn't be discovered because it could be discovered in the bin. <laughs> so I did hide a lot of stuff in sofas. I think only money, I think is the only thing I found. It would be lovely to have an old sofa and open it up or reach down and find some first edition book, something or some gold doubloon or something that had been left there for centuries. But yeah, I think yeah, that would I did good. used to go around, you know, I think most kids did when you had no money, when you're 10 or 11, you'd sort of scour all the drawers and, down the sofa and pick up any money you could and it's sort of not stealing it's sort of stealing isn't it? <laughs> but it's sort of not it is stealing. A little bit. <laughs> sort of, it is if you're taken out of purses i think if it's down the side of a sofa that's sort of yours find his keepers <laughs> so unfortunately probably about 53 pence is about the best i've done fair enough could yeah. be worse um anyway abby i'll let you carry on Thank you. <laughs> so we could get through the interview and not speak about your Leicester Square Theatre podcast. You're an early podcaster and became the UK's podcast king. So how did you get into podcasting? How did you even find out it was a thing? And how has the podcast world changed since you first started making them? There's a lot of questions in there. I, um, <laughs> I was... Uh... I found out about it, really, I didn't know much about it, and we started podcasting in 2008, I think, January 2008, which was obviously pretty early, and I'd, um, it was actually the same month I started dating my wife, which was just a coincidence, but that's how I can remember when it was. So it was quite a big change in my life. I was 40, and, uh, uh, and things sort of changed for me in a, a lot of positive ways. I was sort of getting frustrated about doing stuff on tv and radio or not doing it because you know you would come up with ideas you have to pitch them people would change them they might you know you might do a pilot it might get on it might not get on uh, and there was lots of censorship and especially around then there'd been this uh, there'd been a sort of kerfuffle about uh, russell brand and jonathan ross had been rude to andrew Sachs, who's an old actor on their radio show and the bbc had got very nervous about being offensive uh, and then there was just, you know, this op we, my, I, I was working with a guy called Andrew Collins. Uh, we'd done some stuff on the radio. And then he sort of said, look, I, you know, I did this podcast with these guys at some magazine, music magazine, and it's all pretty easy. You just need a laptop and you can just record it. And we just found someone who could upload it for us because we were duffers and as it came to that, but we knew how to record it. And we just thought, well, let's, why don't we just get together every week and have a chat? And uh, maybe if, I don't know, after two or three weeks, if it's good, someone might let us back on the radio. It was almost as simple as that but what appealed to me about it and as we got going what appealed to me about it was just the autonomy of being able to do whatever you wanted i really loved the fact that you could have an idea and put it straight up and it could go straight out so we would record those podcasts and they'd be up within you know three or four hours um so you could do a topical jokes so you could be as rude as you wanted uh, only people people only listen to them if they really wanted to listen to them so you weren't going to people's homes so you were sort of protected from all that sort of stuff which i think is fair enough if you're going on the bbc and it's six o'clock and you start being terribly rude or saying offensive things then that's going to people's homes and i don't think that's on but if you're if you're you know if they've chosen to download you then that, that's their choice and they can choose not to download the next one if they don't like it so 
it, it, I realised quite quickly, uh, it was fun, really. We just were doing it for a laugh. And we, we did end up getting back on the radio as a result eventually. But slowly, I kind of realised, you know, you had an audience there uh, that were coming back every week. I could promote my gigs, which, you know, I was at very early on, I was still seeing myself only as a stand-up comedian. And I saw the podcast just as a way of maybe I can direct a few people towards the live shows. And I saw within about a year or so, my audience had doubled and it was really down to the podcast from quite a small number to a slightly bigger number. So all those things I liked about it, but it was really, and people were saying to me, what, but you're not getting paid while you're doing this. This is crazy. And I was going, well, no, it's not about the money. It's about doing something that you want to do and doing it under your own terms um, and not being hassled by the man, <laughs> not being told you have to change anything. So I just like that freedom, really. And then the more I did it, the more I kind of thought, oh, we, we realised we could do live shows and charge people to come and see them. So there was a way of making a bit of money. <clears throat> but anyway, it was you know affecting my stand-up revenue. So I was getting more money from stand-up as a result. So it was working as a business idea, even though that hadn't really been the intention. It did lead to some other work as well. But I just realised... You know, there's all the equipment now, it's, and it's got easier and easier. You can make your own stuff very easily. You can put it out there very easily. And and I'm I was always just more interested in the content than anything else. Fame or money <clears throat> is sort of all. The money's all right. Fame's not as great as it could be cracked up to be. But it's nice to get paid for what you're doing. But it's not the be all and end all of it. Um, and I just sort of saw, hey, you know, I could do it. I did a show called As It Curse Me, which was like a a weekly stand up and sketch show that I wrote the night the night before we did it. And, uh, you know, and then that sort of moved once that Collins and Herring stopped, it sort of realized, well, maybe I can just try and do that with different people every week. So I would just try things out and some of them worked and some of them didn't. I did some very weird stuff, uh, which I'm still doing, like playing myself at snooker and commentating on it as an audio podcast. I'm not very good at snooker. Uh, and, um, uh, and I've recently started clearing stones from a field and, and explaining how to do that to people. Um, so there's sort of avant-garde, sort of almost artistic ideas that are about um, stretching something boring over a long period of time. Uh, and, you know, and then Rahalastapur, which was the Les Square Theatre thing, did sort of take off. And I got big, big name people were kind of keen to do it very early on. Uh, and so, you know, I, because I'd got in early, I was, and most people weren't interested in doing podcasts at that time, because because they didn't get, you know, you didn't get money for doing them. Uh, I think I was able to sort of rise up more quickly than I might have done, and uh, and sort of get a good foothold in the business uh, in the in the medium. And you know, I've been doing the Less Square Thick podcast for eight years now, I think, um, and uh, maybe nine if you include the Edinburgh ones. And so, and I've done, you know, you've done quite a lot of episodes of your thing in just in this year, but I've done something like 300 episodes of this podcast, maybe 400, including the Edinburgh ones, maybe a bit more. Um, so, you know, you get better and better at what you're doing. So you have this opportunity. No one's telling you that. So when I did TV, we'd do a couple of series or something, then the executives would change and they'd say, okay, we don't want you to do anymore. Uh, but with this, I'm on series 19, you know, of, of <laughs> podcast, and they're loosely divided into series uh and i i can finish it when i want to finish it really so it, that freedom is amazing and things have changed massively especially in the last two or three years obviously more and more people have got into podcasting and there is now money in podcasting because people are coming to see live shows and some of them have got so big they can play much bigger venues than a lot of tv comedians could play 
Uh, I'm still fairly modest in that, but I've I've had my biggest audiences I've ever had uh, have been with podcasts where I've had something like uh, 1,200 people, you know, in in Glasgow and 1,100 people in Birmingham. And Les Square Theatre has sort of peaked at 400, but that's as big as it is. There's definitely ones which have sold a lot more. Um, and uh, yeah, and and, and you, you know, and also there's now advertising and stuff coming into it, and people are keen to advertise in it. So suddenly it is a it's a it's turned into a business. And I'd love to pretend I was a really clever businessman who'd seen this right at the beginning and knew how it was all going to pan out. But it's still 12 years of you know it's 12 years of work, and and I only really started getting paid for doing it, um, you know, in any manageable degree i mean i could probably make a living from podcasting now i tend to put most of it back into making more shows because i, I want to do a, an audio sitcom i've started doing a uh, ventriloquist act with my 128 year old scary ventriloquist puppet sorry to suddenly bring that up scare you. Um, <laughs> he's a bit frightening uh, my great granddad made that and so i've started doing that and so in lockdown i've got now i'm on twitch as well which is usually gamers but you can do comedy on it and uh you know, again, it's just have an idea, see where it goes. And lockdown's been great for that. And that, you know, I've created this possible stupid show of me talking to a ventriloquist dummy. Uh, and I've been doing lots of snooker and stone clearing and all sorts of things. So it's uh, as well as carrying on doing the podcast. So it's uh, the main podcast. Um, so, yeah, it's exciting. But I think just as a, as a creative person, the idea of cutting out that part, that gatekeeper that says, this isn't good or this is good. You know, when I know some, some of the things I've written, I know are really good. And if they put them on TV or made them, they would do well with a bit of luck, but you've got to convince other people of that. They'll come in and say, I want to do it like this. You go, no, I don't want to do it like that. They say, okay, we're not going to do it. And so to be able to just prove yourself and get on with stuff. And, and I suppose in the last 10 years, that's what I've done. I've just sort of got on with stuff my, on my own. Probably 80% of my work is self-generated. As a stand-up, you know, you're doing that anyway. You're creating. I've been creating stand-up shows every year and touring them. Um, so you're just getting work off your own bat, and then occasionally someone will come. You no, know, something like Taskmaster, which maybe we'll talk about, or you know, the little bits of telly I've been doing will come in, and you'll do that, and that's someone else's thing. Um, but basically, nearly everything is my own stuff, and I seem to still be coming up with ideas, <laughs> and some of them are better than others. But with the internet, you're able to find out, you know, and you've, you can find out. With comedy, the great thing about comedy, as much as anyone, you know, every comedian gets people on Twitter going, well, I don't, I don't see how you're a comedian, you're not funny. And you go, well, this is a job which absolutely, there's no job that is as assessed uh, as much as comedy is. Every single time you get on stage, you are assessed. You get a report back from the consumers. If they don't laugh, you're not doing your job. If they do laugh, you're doing well. If they keep paying to come and see you, it means you're doing well. So, you know, as much as we'll go so-called comedian about any comedian, any comedian who's working is a, is a comedian. <laughs> and any comedian who people are paying to see is a comedian. So, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's lovely to have the autonomy and it just, and I'm, I feel very happy. And for the, you know, for, I think I wasn't really happy when we, we did TV stuff in the nineties and uh, it was hard work and, we had to make compromises and we, you know, we, we were pulling in different directions, Stuart and I uh, quite a lot. Um, so it's nice just to be able to get on and do absolutely your own thing and, and live or die by it as well. You know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And that's it. The thing about being a comedian is that's it. If people aren't, aren't watching you, aren't laughing at you, aren't paying to see you, then that's, that's the end of it. So, um, you know, I want I kind of always wanted to create interesting stuff and I always wanted to keep, relevant and i always wanted to 
push myself and you know not not get stuck in one thing which is why i've you know i've written books i've written sitcoms i've written plays um i've i've you know i've done a lot of different sorts of comedy and uh because i want to keep pushing myself and finding out what what i can do and what i'm capable of and uh and you know and keep trying to create something that surprises me as well and that's what i'm able to do online i'm able to do that whatever else happens you know it's sort of as long as the audience is there to to come and watch it then it's then it can still exist so as you said before that your show focuses on interviewing celebrities quite like what we've been doing in lockdown <laughs> um what tips do you have for running these interviews and how do you put your interviewees at such ease i i, I don't know you know again it wasn't something i'd really thought about or practiced i think um i think given that I am also a comedian and most of my guests are comedians. I think I know what not to ask. I know what comedians get asked all the time. Um, I kind of know what will be, what will be interesting to them and what won't be interesting to them. And I think the emergency questions, which came about um, sort of accidentally because I very early on I interviewed Jonathan Ross and was a, I didn't really know him at all and was a bit surprised he'd done it. And I was a bit intimidated because he's a very successful interviewer. It was like maybe my fourth interview. And I just got to a point where I, just couldn't think of anything to say for a second and it was just it felt like a minute but it was probably 10 seconds um and uh, i just thought well i should have just some general questions that i can some stupid questions i can ask to fill in if anything like that happens or if something goes a bit weird or whatever and so i just started writing these slightly stranger questions but it but again that accident and that thing that came out of my incompetence really was was sort of accident you know a lot of the things you do a lot of the good decisions to make i think are accidental and in hindsight, they look like, oh, that was brilliant planning. That'll lead to you doing three books and this being a very successful podcast. You know, it would just, it, what it did, people get asked the same things all the time. If you ask them something they've never been asked, you sort of have to use a different part of your brain to answer that, right? So if you've got a script, I think like comedians and celebrities have a script and you go, well, tell me about the time you were in your most successful show. And then they've, they've basically run the script off. If you ask them something they've never been asked and have never even thought of, they have to think on the spot and they want to be entertaining and they want to be funny. And you'll get good, you know, for every one that goes wrong and nothing happens, there'll be nine or 10 where you get something extraordinary. And again, very early on, I interviewed Stephen Fry and it wasn't even one of my questions, but the question that my director's son, who was about 10 years old, 11 years old at the time, had asked me to ask him, which is what is like, what's it like being Stephen Fry? And I think because it's because of the audience who are a lovely audience and I'm very lucky to have very nice people come and see me. There's a lovely atmosphere in the theater. It feels a friendly place. And I think that's what made him open up. So he opened up and sort of talked about a suicide attempt that he'd had. It was very serious, but it was also very uh, bold and electric and important as well that he talked about it because it was about mental health and about how he got through this experience and the importance of getting through it. And then he went on to being just very funny again. But it was, I think, by having opened up, this is my theory, but by having asked questions that can't be prepared for, that you haven't told the guests they're going to get, that you open up a different part of their brain. And then when they go back to talking about themselves, you still get different stories. So you get new stories, even about their most famous thing. And I think, I think I'm very open. I'm very honest. And so I think that I'm very uh, happy to share my foibles and my failures and 
uh, you know, what a useless human being I am. And I think when someone does that, then that means means you're also happy to do that. You know, you go, okay, this is fine. We're in a safe place where we can talk about this. So I don't really know. I think I think which you're very you've done very well, and uh, and the other interviews I've seen you've done very well. You, you it's just polite to know who you're talking to, and and know about them, and have done more than just read a press release. Which you go and do a lot of interviews, and you are apps. I'm especially someone at my level. I absolutely know the interviewer has no clue who I am at all, right? Which is fine, I don't expect them to, but if they're gonna interview you, at least spend 20 minutes looking through. <laughs> it's easy to find stuff about anyone now online. So, you know, I, I research my guests well enough. If there's something in the research, you think you read an interview with them, you go, why didn't they ask this? Why, I wanna, this, what's interesting about this story isn't in this interview. So you'll, you make a note, you know, I will make notes and I'll, I will have ideas of what I'm gonna talk about. But I also love them when they're just free flowing and especially with funny people where we just get riffing about a funny idea that isn't even anything about them. So it's, it is getting people at their ease somehow. It's, I think you've got to be, what I'm good at, I think having been in lots of double acts um, is I can quite quickly work out where my status is in the interview and therefore how to react. So if I'm talking to someone more serious, who's uncomfortable and worried about being funny, I'll up the funniness. If I'm talking to someone very funny uh, or somebody really, I did an interview with Brian Blessed, who I didn't really need to be there, but I managed to inject when I needed to a question or a comment. And I knew exactly, you know, I knew I didn't have that much choice in that one, but I knew <laughs> you work out how much you have to participate. So some people are quieter. As you'll notice with me, you can ask a question and I'll carry on talking for 15 minutes if, if I'm if I come down to it but if you're interviewing someone who's quiet uh, Mackenzie Crook who's a, a genius and a lovely man would often answer questions with one word and then you have to find a way of, of extracting a bit more um, so it's just being able to to move your own personality and I try I think to let the guest lead in terms of how it's going to be so if the guest wants to be serious or a bit more serious, I, that's fine. I might undercut it a little bit. Um, but if the guest is up for a laugh, I'll push it on. We'll see how far we can push things. <laughs> sometimes we'll push things too far and collapse, and sometimes it'll be okay. But it's what's beautiful about comedy, what's beautiful about an interview, is it's a leap of faith. A joke is a leap of faith. You'll do something. You know, I've often just got to take a risk. Will this work in the face of... I'm, I, I did a great interview with Richard E. Grant, which sadly never got to go out because for uh, whatever reason, him or his people didn't want it to go out. And I don't understand it because he was brilliant. And it was a, one of my favourite interviews I've done. Um, but he was... Talk, we were talking about the Oscars. He'd actually just not failed to win the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. and uh, But he was talking about the pre stuff where he'd been very giddy and excited. And most people loved him and thought this was great that he was that he was so excited about getting an Oscar nomination. And then one journalist had said, um, yeah, he's doing that, he's playing the game, he's trying to, he's hoping that that will make him win if he appears to be this, uh, you know, this frivolous, happy idiot, uh, or whatever it was. And uh, and he said, I'm really upset about that. And he generally was very upset about th this journalist. I said, yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, if you were that good an actor, you'd have won the Oscar. And so it was a massive risk because I didn't know him. I hadn't even really met him before the interview on that one. He could easily have stormed off. He could easily have said, you can't put this interview out, which he did, but I don't think it was because of that. But, you know, the, it was a big laugh. And also he laughed and went, yeah, that's, you know, very funny. That's true. 
Um, and so it was lovely. It was a lovely moment. But I had to make that leap of faith. And it could equally have gone, how dare you? And he could have stormed off. So you've got to take chances with comedy. Um, and you've got to be in an environment where you feel you can take those chances. Uh, and I suppose that's it. I, I'm a little bit rude to my guests, but I, but ultimately I hope they all know they're there because I hugely respect them. I don't really, I again get to choose the guests. So it's the hardest thing about it is getting, is booking the guests. Um, but I am, I'm only having people on that I at least like, but usually massively respect. Uh, so, um, you know, I think they, they, that means that I'm, I can be a little bit cheekier with them because I guess I sit between, you know, I've, some of the younger ones, you know, grew up watching my TV shows and so uh, uh, slightly excited to meet me. And uh, I think the older ones, you know, are aware of who I am generally uh, and sort of trust me a little bit. And I suppose the longer it goes on, the more you build up that trust. Interesting. It's interesting. Time. We have loads more questions. Okay. Um, so we're going to go to the audience now. Okay. Few more so we're going to go to samuel first hello hello richard how are you hello samuel i'm good how are you doing i'm all right good um, so i'm um i've heard you write a blog every single day yeah going on since 2002 so that's quite a long time now almost two decades so um what what influenced you to to start it and um what does it mean to you all these years later in 2020, 18 years of 18 years worth of 365 days of, of a blog? Yeah. And uh, has it helped you to stay sane throughout the lockdown? And would you recommend blog writing to others? Yeah, well, I would. Um, I know it's kind of a bit old fashioned thing. In 2002, it seemed like quite a, a, a new thing. Again, I was quite an early adopter of, of that sort of thing that people have been doing in the late 90s I think um the reason I started it was I, I was just in a point where I'd just written, finished uh, I'd been writing the sitcom Time Jet and Please with Al Murray it'd been very very hard work and we'd written 35 episodes I'd done most of the writing and um a I was for the first time in my life was had a bit of financial security as a result uh but b uh, I was sort of a little bit I'd moved house or I was about to move house and I was a little bit lost and I was and I was wondering where what was going to happen next we'd had this sort of tv success and then we'd I'd written this sitcom and then that had stopped and and I just felt like I was wasting a lot of time right? I was I didn't have to go to work because I had money and uh, I was sort of sitting in the flat and um, not getting anything done and I read a Douglas Adam book called The Salmon of Doubt, which was just a collection. He's, uh, I mean, he, he wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all sorts of things. and was a very big influence on me as a kid. He done, sat, died very young, about 48 years old. Uh, and he'd really struggled with writer's block. And he'd, there was just this book of a collection of some of his essays. And I just thought, isn't it really sad? This guy, you know, was such a genius. He died so young and had so many ideas, but actually didn't, you know, didn't get loads of them down. Uh, and I just sort of thought I want to get back into writing and the, it's called warming up because initially I thought if I just sit down for half an hour in the morning and write anything then that will mean that I'm in the mood to write something I just felt like I was wait days will go days and weeks were passing by and nothing was happening uh, it didn't work because I would write a blog and sort of feel like I'd done some work and then not do anything else but it was a really good exercise in terms of I, you know, I'd write it the next day. So I'd, write, I'd look back on the whole day and go, what was interesting or funny about that day? Um, 
and then you had to come up with something. And most of my days, like lockdown, not all the days are the same and not that much is happening. <laughs> Uh, so you really had to struggle to home in on what might be interesting and sometimes you fail so a as a writer it's a brilliant exercise because you've just got to do it quickly uh, you get better and better at writing but you get better at working out how to write what's interesting to write about and how once you get in a flow with writing you can suddenly find something else so you go oh, i'll write about that see what happens then bang so an idea will happen you've written something quite good i wasn't even doing stand-up at the time um but I, when I came back to stand-up, I realised I had quite a lot of stuff with it. If you, even if you're writing one good thing a month, that's still 12 potential routines a year. And I think, it, I think the hit rate's better than once a month. So, you know, you were cre I was creating loads of material. And then when I got back to stand-up, I realised I could use that material. And when I wrote books, I realised I wrote a book about turning 40. And I realised I had a, basically a diary. I don't write very personal things in there generally. And... Um, uh, I'm very conscious of not writing about other people or, you know, affecting other people's lives because it's going out online. Um, but, you know, I, when I wrote my book, there was loads of stuff I could use for the book and there was loads of stuff that I'd forgotten. I look back at it now and I often can't remember the incident that I wrote about or the thing I wrote about. So it's just this, when it stretches out over 18 years, I mean, it's crazy to do it every day. <laughs> But now I'm doing it every day. It's very difficult to say I'm going to take a day off because, you know, you've created this, I mean, it's 6,000 entries or something, you know, you've created this <laughs> sprawling thing. <laughs> but I think it becomes a very interesting little snapshot of your life. Uh, it becomes a very interesting snapshot of our times. I don't, you know, I don't think it's Samuel Pepys level, <laughs> but I think, <laughs> and, you know, somewhat a social historian could look back at it in 100 years time and get some idea of, of what the early or early 21st century was like um or certainly like, it's interesting because obviously you're writing as things develop as diaries are so you know things change uh and then things are the same as well you know i think I, i've tried to lose weight and put on weight and lost weight you know about 15 times during those 18 years um so some things are just the same thing over and repeated over and over again but yeah it's, as a writer i just think then when i became i wrote for the metro for a few years and I, I, gen, I, I found that much easier than I would have done because I was basically writing a Metro article every day. Uh, and then you'd have the groundwork to A, take that and turn it into an article, but also tidy it up a bit. But I think by giving myself the permission to be boring, to give my permission to try something, and if it didn't work, it didn't matter. And it didn't matter because, you know, some people read it, but it's not really even for them. It's just by putting it up, it means it happens. Uh, I don't even know how many people read it um so you know it's it's been a really good thing to do and yeah and i guess it's just been a great way to create some ideas for other stuff and and keep your brain working but if you want to be a writer i would recommend it you don't or just a diary you don't have to put it up online just as an exercise to um get better at you know getting ideas down and and understanding the way that an article or a routine or you know a story is generated and and how and how you how you can best express that so you're i just think by doing it people say how do you become a stand-up comedian and the answer is you just get up there and do it and you do it and do it until you work out who you are and what you want to say and anything else is just procrastination you know you just need to get out there and do it if you want to be a writer i would highly recommend writing something every day even if it's yourself even if it's a hundred words um but yeah it's been yeah it's been really interesting and it's going to be hard to stop um 
but some you know it's incredible that nothing has happened to me in 18 years that has stopped me doing it so i've never been so ill that i haven't been able to write for a week or i've never had such a tragic thing happen that i can't sit down and face writing it there's been some bad things that happened but um you know sometimes i write two and you know catch up a couple of days but if 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 you let more than three days slip away you're not going to be able to go but certainly now i couldn't do it unless i did it the next day because it's very difficult to think of anything but that i think a lot of my more esoteric stand-up has come from that because one of the examples was you know i, I remember sitting for ages thinking nothing happened nothing happened yesterday and then i remembered i've been in a supermarket and i bought nine yogurts and at the checkout the woman had said oh someone likes yogurt and I'd completely forgotten about it and didn't, did, I didn't even, ref, it didn't even strike me at the time. There's a routine in that. But then I thought, oh, that's all that happened. I'll write about that. And I wrote a blog and then that turned into a routine and that routine turned into like a sometimes an hour long routine about how I didn't particularly like yogurt, but I was just buying them to store in my fridge. But then becoming like, seemingly this man is obsessed with yogurt. So that routine would never have existed. That idea of doing something like that would never have existed if I hadn't been forced to think what the hell happened yesterday <laughs> and take a very tiny thing from from life and let's try and turn that into something and there's lots of times i've taken a tiny thing from life tried to turn it into something and failed but you just need to hit once every now and again and, and you're off okay thank you very much no that's that's a good question interesting answer. good series of questions yeah. and the next question <laughs> yeah. is from izzy hello izzy hi hello Hi. Um, so my question is, you seem to love celebrity TV game shows and you <laughs> even second on Celebrity Mastermind with your special subject, Rascal. You've up. also been on Pointless Celebrities. <laughs> I have. The Chase and Tipping Point. Which yep. one was your favourite? Do you take the winning and losing seriously? And is <laughs> yes. any cheating as Richard Osman has accused celebrities of? No, well, he, he accused people of cheating on my uh, on my podcast. Uh, and no, I don't cheat. Um, I am very competitive. Uh, it take, I take it very seriously, all of them, really. Um, and I've done pointless four times. Three of them have been out, and I came... I was knocked out in the first round, in the first one, in the second round, in the second one, in the third round, in the third one. I can't tell you what happened in the fourth one. Um, uh, but... I love that show. I think Roger Osman is a genius. I love House of Games, which I've done a couple of times and won both times. Uh, I haven't yet done The Chase, but I'm doing it in about two weeks' time. Tipping Point hasn't been out yet, so I can't talk about that, but that was a, a very... He's, ben Shepard is an amazing presenter and does brilliantly with that slightly crazy show. Um, I mean, Taskmaster I've just done as well, which I can't talk about too much, but uh, that was unbelievable amount of fun to do. I mean, I've never laughed as much in my life as i did for the five days that we recorded on that show um but uh i think my i don't know my, i would have loved to have won mastermind i did very very well on mastermind and i think at the point that i finished i was the highest scoring ever contestant on mastermind but then i still lost because the next person got one more point uh so it's quite good because it creates this brand of me being a very try hard person who keeps failing, though I have started winning some of these games. So it's that, that slightly ruined things. Um, but I don't know, I think I might go for House of Games as my favorite sort of quiz one, which is the other Richard Osman show, um, because it kind of appeals to comedians, this show. It's kind of lateral thinking more than a quiz show. Uh, and, but it still becomes very competitive. Uh, I think Richard Osman is an absolute genius. He's a, a guy who loves TV and loves both highbrow and lowbrow stuff and treats it with equal reverence, which I think is correct. And I think 
those quiz shows are often the things that people will remember years later, you know, and I think Pointless especially is, you know, they're so good on it and it's such a good idea and it's quite a hard quiz. Um, but uh, yeah, it would, I wish I'd won Mastermind, but I don't want to go back on Mastermind because it was too hard and it was, I'd worked very hard on it. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I think I would go for, for House of Games for as a quiz and Taskmaster as probably just the most brilliant experience I've had on TV in my whole life. Thank you. Okay. So we were talking about this briefly before, but I think everyone needs to hear it. So in recent years, you've been a hero on International Women's Day. Um, as you took to Twitter to respond to those asking if there was also an International Men's Day, which led to you raising lots of money for charity um, and about your book. So is there any advice that you have regarding your book to anyone watching that maybe you wish you knew when you were younger? Well, definitely buy my book and read my book. That's my, that's my main advice. So I've written a book about this, uh, about my International Women's Day sort of marathon, which I did over nine different uh, March the 8th, I think, which was just a finding. I'd, not just me, but people realised that you'd go on Twitter and there'd be a lot of people on International Women's Day asking when's International Men's Day, uh, as if there never would be one. You know, it's like, oh, I, you know, I'd love to see International Men's Day. It was that sort of stupid attitude, which back in the early 2010s felt like a, a niche and comedic thing. Now it sort of feels a bit more like the more general consensus, which again, I think the, you know, the Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter thing is, is comes from the same place and is a horrible place. Because why go on, you know, why try and ruin International Women's Day by talking about yourself? It's basically like, you know, going to someone else's birthday party and going, when's my birthday? Why are you getting presents? I want presents. Um, and especially given that, you know, as in terms of equality, the balance of the things that are unequal for men, are, it doesn't match up with the things that are unequal for women. But there is an International Men's Day. So in the, I didn't, you know, I didn't think this would become a big deal. I did it for fun. It was, I, it was a self-defeating thing to do because I was, it's like King Canute trying to turn back a tide that's, never going to turn back you know and I knew it from the start and I knew I would spend all day doing this getting increasingly angry sometimes jokingly and sometimes really and never change anything and uh, it wasn't until six or seven years in someone said why don't you try and raise money with this <laughs> so I wouldn't have thought of doing that and so that was wonderful because it turned into being this uh, a big money raise for refuge just by saying if you've, if you've enjoyed this chuck some money this way and I would never anticipated and I would never have anticipated the that the amounts of money that were raised in a day were insane and I did that three times um and then I've, I, I, it's a very wearing thing it's a difficult thing to do and also just increasingly the the responses especially from men but sometimes from uh sort of more extreme feminists who don't think men I should be making the day about myself which I have some sympathy with um got quite nasty and so I decided to stop it but then some then a publisher came to me said would you write a book about it um and it's sort of a book about I think it's an important thing because I think it's a book about it's it's a funny book and it's a short book and it's a book where I do some of my silly tweets but also talk about what it's called the problem with men and it's about um why what why where men have found themselves and why they're in this position where they're being this sort of churlish childish behavior really and whether we can actually make international men's day a thing for men because i think ultimately um asking about that on international women's day damages men as much as women because it means 
if you wanted to celebrate International Men's Day, it becomes like a thing that's in response to something else, which it shouldn't be. We're not fighting, you know, we're not at war. There's the battle of the sexes and there's the, the badinage between the sexes and that's all fine. But we're not, we're all human beings. <laughs> we're working together. And if you generally want equality, which these international, when's International Men's Day men claim they want, then women getting equality will mean you get equality. That's how equality works. So it's, it's you know, it's, a, it's very simple stuff. Um, but, but the book surprised me. I think when you think about something like this and you think about a subject and you have to write 25,000 words about it, you know, you, you do surprise yourself and things came up with it that I, I kind of, I didn't think I would come round to the idea of actually celebrating International Men's Day, but I think it's worth doing. And if you look at what it was when it was created, it isn't, um, it isn't about women and it isn't about mental health really particularly or suicide or all these other things that are important issues with men. It's about men being, you know, responsible and being good family people and being appreciated and being treated the same but also men becoming better men, you know, which I think we need to be. I think men are confused. Uh, and what, I mean, I don't think there's much difference between men and women, really. I think a lot of the stuff uh, is imposed on whatever civilization society you're with. Obviously, gender's become a much more fluid thing. I mean, I say become, but many civilizations have recognized this over centuries. Um, uh, and so the idea of, you know, I think the idea of talking about men and women is even sort of redundant. We're all just people and some of us are better at some things and some of us are better at other things. And it actually, some of it corresponds with strength, and uh, but not not that much of it. So, or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, I think it's just about trying to, which I did in my show, I did a show, uh, which was an answer to the vagina monologues uh, about men's uh, genitalia. And uh, that was sort of similarly just trying to help men, I think, and myself, because I'm far from perfect, uh, move onwards and, uh, and work out what our role is in the modern world. So I think International Men's Day could do that. And I think it's, I just think, you know, we need to stop this what about re and, and, and also everyone looking at themselves, go, what about me? What about me? What, when am I getting a day? When am I getting a day? You know, it's, it's we're, all work, we're all in this together. Um, men are some men are afraid of feminism some men are afraid of the idea of uh, women uh, you know being cleverer or funnier than them it seems insane to me uh, i you want the best people to be doing the, the, the job they're best at so we have a better society and you want the best you know want to promote everyone who's who's able to do it so, you know, it's just a little tiny step and it's not, you know, I'm, and it's not trying to scare men off and it's not trying to, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be an expert. I'm not Russell Brand. I'm not claiming to be an expert on feminism because I'm not, but it's the logic, I think, of just understanding why that one question leads to other stuff. So it does lead to that all lives matter stuff, which is much more dangerous and insidious, I think. It's sort of, I sort of compare... When's International Men's Day being like the marijuana that leads you onto the hard stuff of then becoming a racist? But but it's also trying to, you know, the, the patriarchy, I think, is not quite as uh, bad for men as it is for women. But for many men, the patriarchy that they, the weird thing is men stand up to their, um, you know, kind of most stereotypes. People go, well, we're not really like that. But men, a lot of men go, yeah, that stereotype of me, that's what I'm like. And it's a horrible stereotype. Uh, and um, you know, and also they prop up the patriarchy, which which 
for most men doesn't do them any good. You know, men are being sent to war, men have been sent down mines historically, uh, and the patriarchy doesn't do them any good. And yet they will back it up like anything. And that's a weird thing as well. So I think making people realize that moving forwards and creating a more equal society might actually benefit them more than propping up the thing that's harming them. You know, and the men, these men are sort of going, yeah, look, men are, men are more likely to commit suicide. Men are, men are, you know, more depressed. Men are go to prison more. Men are going to war. You go, yeah, why? But it's not, that's not women doing that. That's not women. That's a patriarchal society largely led by men. So you're actually, fighting for the same thing and i think if you can realize that if you realize that uh you know you can just shift your brain a little bit and and realize that who your actual enemy is and constantly we're being uh the people in power attempting to make us fight each other and and creating any kind of scapegoat away from the actual people who are responsible um and uh you know, which I do not need to tell any of you leads to some terrible, terrible places. And the truth is, it, you know, it's if we all work together, we'll get we'll do a lot better. So it's um, yeah. So the but it's it's lovely to go. It was lovely to write a book and lockdown and get it done. I don't know how I did it. It was hard. I was wasn't in a creative space, um, but it was actually interesting the way that lockdown, everything with the statue being thrown in the river, the you know the the black lives matter stuff even covid sort of showing the male leaders approach compared to the female leaders approach generally speaking not entirely but trump and boris johnson seeing it as a war against the virus and uh, jacinda arden seeing it as a as a something that people need to come together and combat in a more sensible fashion it sort of hopefully showed where we could progress if we you know it's not it's not even male and female though i think that female it is females <laughs> there's no reason men can't be sensitive and empath empathetic uh, but men feel they have to be um combative and and number you know trump is just international when's international men's day made into a horrible <laughs> caricature and, and made to rule the world so that's a that's an odd one so we actually have 400 people watching on oh my goodness. right now. <laughs> um, and we still have quite a few more questions. Okay. So I'm sorry that it's overrunning a bit, but we have another audience question from Alex. Hi, Richard. Hello. Hi, uh, a bit of a lighter question than the last. Okay. So as well as your Leicester Square Theatre podcast, you also have two other quirkier podcasts. So me one versus me two snooker. Yeah. More recently, the stone clearing. Yes. Which is about removing stones from a field. So yeah. how did they both start? Can you talk about them? And are you surprised they have so many listeners? I don't know if they've got that many listeners. I don't really care. Uh, but uh, I think they. You know, I'm surprised they've got any listeners. But I think people recognising them. What I, the the snooker one started. I used to play myself at snooker when I was 14, and my brother and sister are a bit older than me. And if, when I was on my own, I would play myself at snooker and commentate. Um, and pretend to be two different players. I think a lot of people have that experience as a child. Um, and uh, I was actually in a, I was in a backstage area, a comedy gig, and they had a snook table, and I started playing myself and tweeting about it. And it was, I just was interested, and I called myself me one and me two, and people started supporting on, you know, ironically or whatever, me one and me two, and getting quite into it. And I just thought there's something interesting in that. 
and I love the idea of taking an idea to its limits and stretching it and seeing what you can do. So that started, I think, in maybe even before the Less Square Theatre podcast, but certainly a good eight or nine years ago. And I haven't done it every week, but I've done 104 frames of that, plus some other extraneous stuff over, over the lockdown. Um, and I love it's about exploring, you know, it's a slightly artistic idea. And it did become like it got it, it got I was I performed at a festival of transgress, transgressive art along with a lot of people who are doing very odd things to their bodies and parts of their bodies we don't want to possibly mention uh and i was doing something sort of dull but making you i think consider that the battles we have are often between ourselves i like the idea there's lots of comedic stuff i like about it is i'm not very good at snooker i don't really understand the rules of it properly uh you don't see many sports where someone who's not that good plays it i think that's quite interesting uh, and also I was doing it in audio to begin with uh, for most of the time, which I thought was funny as well. So I just thought I'd give it a go and see if people got into it. And the, and I, I think the, initially the idea was to try and lose every listener. Um, I started with that 30,000 and it got down to about 5,000. And then it's sort of, I think I haven't checked the figures, but it it's, I couldn't sh shake off the last 5,000 people. Uh, and similarly with stone clearing, I was just going around the field with my dog and it's a stony field and I thought you know I'd start thinking about whether it would be possible in the years I have remaining to clear it of all the stones I didn't know if that would be what the farmer wanted I didn't know if that would be good or bad for the field but it was also a 35 acre field with stone you know a, a, probably a billion stones on it so I'm quite obsessive as you may have gathered from my blogging and everything else I'm doing so I, I want I realized I was doing it for reals but I kind of thought, you know, this is funny as well. And it would be funny to do a podcast in which I try to explain this as if it's a difficult thing to do, as if there would be more than one or two techniques to do this, as if it would be something that would be interesting to lots of people. So it's sort of a bit about the vacuous, vacuity of, of podcasting. Uh, but also uh, it's about a man attempting to defeat nature. And also I'm trying to build a wall that would be visible from space. Uh, that will be there in 10,000 years time so it's about trying to fight your own redundancy and it's sort of about how most a lot of the things we do in life are meaningless and pointless and we will, we will all be forgotten uh, and dead in a ditch like the stones the cold cold stones of winter so again I thought there's just something poetic about it and I thought people might get a kick out of it um, but it's like an art you know I feel that's if I was a Turner Prize artist and was doing that, I think I might win the Turner Prize. I, you know, I think it's that kind of idea, but because I'm a comedian, it's seen as being frivolous, which it is as well. But it's, um, so it, I just want to explore it. And also I'm interested in, if you're doing something like literally walking around a field or playing snooker, it's the same thing really every time. Is it possible to make it different enough that people will want to listen to it every single time is it possible to find new areas of comedy or thought within something that is very dull and very repetitive and so it's as much an exercise in trying to to push myself creatively because talking for 45 minutes as you walk around a field is quite difficult um, and just to keep up that monologue when i was doing stand-up i remember early on seeing someone reggie hunter it was who seemed to just improvise a 30 minute set. I thought it'd be amazing. I was very prepared for all my shows and had everything written. And so the idea of me doing again, like 70 shows where I've walked around a field 
and yeah, done the same thing and managed to find new stuff to talk about or new ways of exploring madness. And a lot of them are about exploring madness, I think, which is a worry because every now and again, you worry you've actually tipped over the edge. But comedy is a lot about skirting that line between sanity and insanity. Um, and I think I find that interesting. So a lot of the things, I'm doing a ventriloquist act as well, which is similar. It's about dividing yourself into two and uh, and that's schizophrenia. So it's it's, you know, examining the human mind whilst being dull but trying to be funny as well so it's i think they're quite challenging uh i'm delighted that enough people um enjoy them to for me to carry on doing them but to be honest i you know i, I could carry on doing them if no one was listening which would be better it'd be much better if no one listened thank you <laughs> thanks man so you have stood up a lot for disability rights you're a patron of the charity scope and you wrote, um, you signed an open letter to the Prime Minister um, about the statistics that nearly two in three of the coronavirus deaths are disabled people. And yeah. why is this important to you? You know, again, it was a, uh, it's something I fell into almost by accident. And I'm really glad it happened to me. But uh, I don't really have any massive personal collection, connection to it. I've got a friend who does uh, have a daughter with very, very mild cerebral palsy. Uh, and I've got a friend, uh, Francesca Martinez, who's a comedian who has cerebral palsy. Um, so it was something I was interested in, but I was basically, um, about 2004, I was trying to do, just trying to pull, I was in a bit of a low place and I was trying to do various stunts and just trying to pull myself out of it. And I wanted to run the marathon. And then a friend of mine said, if you run it for scope, you get a guaranteed place. So it was literally that just literally someone said, Oh, I'm, I'm doing it with scope. Why didn't you do it with scope? And so I went and ran the marathon for scope. And I ended up sort of doing these charity programs that I was, again, when I was doing my genital based stand up show, I tried to do it for I tried to raise money for Macmillan cancer for testicular cancer, and they didn't want to be associated with the show. So I, um, I sort of had done this marathon for scope. I said, do you want me, do you want me to collect money for you? And they said, yeah, of course we do. <laughs> and, in, and in the end, I think I've raised something like, a third of a million pounds for scope just from those programs over the last 15 years so it was a bad mistake by Macmillan I think to be as snooty about it but I then um there's this brilliant woman at uh, scope uh, called Vivian Elliott who kind of got me invited to lots of things and I, I went to a school and met loads of the kids at school and saw where the money that I'd raised through the program and through the marathon had gone and I just sort of it, 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 I just thought it's a really important charity. It's like, and, and people are weird about disabilities and I have been in my life as well before I kind of got into this. Um, and certainly comedians have often joke about disability and I'm, I, I certainly was guilty of that as well, uh, you know, when I was much younger. Uh, and um, I just felt like people are very keen to get behind animal charities and all sorts of charities. And yet disability is something that, you know, potentially almost definitely will affect us all probably personally I, I met uh at one of the events i talked to a disabled person and um i said well you know what what do we call it uh, able-bodied what's the right word for able-bodied people able-bodied seems wrong able seems wrong uh and she said we call you the not yet disabled and i think that was the that was the real moment where i thought yeah that's you know why are people they're scared about this subject and i understand that they're scared of 
becoming disabled or they're scared of the i you know that they want to pretend it's a thing that doesn't exist um just to make their lives feel better but the we're all you know we're all going to get old we're either going to die or we're going to get old and if we get old we're going to be disabled and we might be disabled long before that so it's sort of weird that people don't care about it but i it, i just think it's um it's a very important issue i'm very you know and i think it's it's also good that i've again accident most of my stuff i do is accidental so i accidentally got involved with something it's easy to get involved with the charity that you have some personal connection to and i think it's kind of nicer and more not nicer but it's more there's something interesting about um being involved with a charity that you don't necessarily have anything directly connecting you to apart from the fact that uh disability can affect us all so i it just i realized how important it was uh, meeting the kids at the school was was very important and connecting with them and and i think it also massively helped me i was in a it, it, i was at a very low point when i started getting involved with scope and then again back in 2008 i, I was i went to see this christmas show at the, at the uh at the school and you know, again, it just these realizations that you know that the preconceptions you have, and it just made me realize that there are they, you know, something that it should be palpably obvious that disabled children are just children, <laughs> and that they're exactly the same as any children. It's a Christmas show like any other one, but with you know very severely disabled kids involved. But they got so much out of it, and it was such a human moment where i understood my own stupidity and my own selfishness and 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 i, and I watched it and i was sort of thinking you know i also need to turn my own life around i'm being a ridiculous idiot so it was it was it was very important for me personally and i'm really glad to have got involved with it just from uh from any level but from that level that i think it helped me become a more mature and uh, uh less selfish and less self-obsessed person um and again, it's all around about that 2008 time when I when I sort of I met my wife and my life did sort of start well, my life not start turning around. It turned around really, and I changed from being you know someone who was a bit lost to, to having a bit more focus and and a bit more happiness. So, um, but yeah, it's I, I think you've got to you know I think it's nice to do things for other people. I think charities are great, and I think it's sort of I tried to concentrate on one or two things rather than sort of spread myself out i'll do charity gigs if people ask me and i'll do bits and pieces of a charity but i but i decided to get heavily involved with scope and then they did make me a patron of scope which was very i was very um flattered and honored to be and um you know it's nice with refuge and scope particularly that i've uh managed to kind of make some monetary difference at least as well <laughs> whatever else i've done but hopefully raise a bit of awareness of, of what they're what they're about and and help people be you know it's just ignorance and it's the ignorance that i think we're all uh, we all have right and i think that's how i would never want to preach to people and say you know i think i'm so great i understand this i struggled with all this stuff uh and i think we could be a bit more generous generally in life with understanding that people are flawed and make terrible mistakes and they're idiots and are capable of of overcoming that and then doing doing something good at the end of it and hopefully not just cancel people and shut them down because they make a mistake at some point in their life. 
<laughs> no, um, I've got a couple more emergency questions. For okay, you now, let's Richard. do it. Let's do it. Um, so they're going to be um, quick fire ones. Okay. Um, so, and remember that you wrote these. They are okay. weird, but you wrote them. Um, so, do you think Toy Story Two could ever happen in real life? I, you know, I think it could. I've got, I've got kids now, and they've got toys, and I think uh, none, none of the other Toy Stories could happen. But I think Toy Story Two specifically probably has happened. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, what's your worst experience with the delivery company Yodel? Wow, my I'd asked that question because my worst experience was um, them meant to be delivering a little sand table thing for my kids, and three times I think saying that they'd been at the house and I'd literally been sat by the door of my house the whole time and they <laughs> said they posted a card through and they definitely hadn't because I was sitting right by the letterbox and by the, by the second one uh and uh yeah them just lying very badly about the fact that they tried to deliver something which they absolutely hadn't tried to deliver because i've been watching from the window the whole time yeah i think we've all had an experience like that <laughs> absolutely the worst and um last uh quick fire question if you're going to form a barbershop quartet what would you call it um if I was going to form a barbershop, I can only think of the B-sharps from The Simpsons now, which is my favourite <laughs> of The Simpsons, where they say we're going to come up with a name that seems witty at first and gets increasingly less funny every time you hear it. So I'd call myself, I'd call myself, and I can only still be the B, B-sharps. The B-sharps. <laughs> Fair enough. No <laughs> copyright infringements there. Thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs> These are unprecedented times and the physical, mental health and economic impacts may affect us all for some time to come. But do you have hope for the future? Do you think there, um, there are positives that can come out of this in the strange time that we are in now? I do. You know, I'm terrified about the future and I have hopes for the future. I think, that, I think things could go, uh, you know, either way, in either direction. I think could, things could go very badly. But I, I do think ultimately most people are pretty good i think people can be selfish and can be lazy and can just be like oh everything will be all right uh, and i don't think we're in that position for loads of reasons you know i think there's the, the climate the political situation uh the recession we're going to be in uh the, whatever the effects of brexit are going to be uh you know we, we're heading for a bumpy bumpy time but I, I, you know, I, I really, I think there's loads of encouraging things. I think, especially from your generation, which I'm very hopeful, um, you can, you know, do stuff with. I think the stuff that's happening with the Extinction Rebellion is exciting. I think, I think, hopefully, if your generation can become politically motivated to realise that protesting does can make difference to stuff, as I think the A level stuff did, uh, and hopefully the Black Lives Matter stuff did. Um, that, you know, I think we can move on. It's, you know, it's going to be difficult. I think we've got a lot of challenges to face and I think, it, you know, it's not always going to be easy to concentrate on everything that needs to be concentrated on. Um, but I, I sort of feel history is a bit of a pendulum and I think, I fear that the pendulum might have to go a bit further to the unpleasant side for us to swing back again. But it, But I think incrementally progress is being made i think it's very slow in a lot of it and it's uh, you know it's there's a lot of things you know i didn't think nazis were going to become a thing again i think we i think we sort of sorted out nazis 1945 i think we worked out that didn't work out very well um 
and so it's extremely upsetting <laughs> that uh, that it's even like that 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 sort of right wing politics is back on any kind of agenda. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I I it'll be interesting to see what happens in America. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Brexit. But I think that you know the pan the pandemic, as much as it's been horrific, uh, and as much as we've lost lots of people and lots of people have been really badly ill. Um, I kind of hope that it has brought the community, an idea of community back and, and hopefully healed a few of the divisions in our country at least. Um, and, uh, you know, I do remain positive and optimistic because I think, I think there's enough good people and enough, I think ultimately, you know, I think the environment might be a big thing. And I think a lot of the things that are going wrong at the moment result of, environmental issues as much as man-made issues well, I mean, the environment issues are man-made but um and i think we'll be forced to have a rethink about a lot of the things that are seen as being normal but it will only come if younger people and really people of my age because we need to motor it on um start to start recognizing what the problems are and what needs to be changed because i think some of the very older people are maybe not going to change their minds but i think we can i think it's possible to uh to move things on fairly quickly if if enough people get behind it the you know i did my show, i did a show called hitler mustache which was about the importance of voting and how i didn't think right-wing politics would really take off in our country ever and which wasn't right <laughs> but the importance of voting is there you know so the importance of being politically engaged and I, you know, I think things might go so wrong that we make some changes and, and, you know, maybe the thing with Trump in America is maybe by going against it and if, if he loses and the next people who come in might move things forward as a result of having taken that step, what I consider to be a step backwards, you might get a step forwards as a result that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't had the bad thing. And I think with the COVID stuff, if that hadn't happened, we might, you know, the NHS I think it might give the NHS a chance of surviving because I think it gets harder and harder to to dismantle it and it's wronger and wronger to dismantle it and I think when you see when you appreciate that life is that fragile and something can just rip through the world in the way this has that we do need to stay together that we do need you know you need to understand even if you're a billionaire you didn't become a billionaire on your own you became a billionaire because everyone worked together and made you a billionaire it's not fair and it's not right um and we need to be, uh, you know, make this society more equal than it is. But maybe by pushing it, you know, well, I mean, if it does go worse, I think it might get better. But that's not very positive because <laughs> we don't want things to go uh, too bad again. But uh, who knows? Who knows? I, th I, th I, you know, I think there'll be there'll be lots of good things that come out of it. And there's always, I was, I did it. I mentioned this on a podcast, but there's in Chernobyl. Um, a mushroom started growing on the inside of the reactors that might be able to be capable of protecting spacecraft from radiation. And so like, there's a terrible thing that's happened and then something might come out of that that enables human humanity to survive and go to another planet eventually. You know, that's, that's the way. Some, sometimes the repercussions of something awful can have an unexpected benefit down the line, which does not mean, great, the terrible thing happened, but it means out of, out of whatever bad happens, something may spring up that surprises you um i sort of, I, th I think the people in control are so the people in charge don't i just you know then they're, they're taking punts on stuff and i don't think they've thought through what's going to happen 
And I think ultimately it might all blow up in their faces because I think it's they'll just push things and get to a point where people go, look, this is this has gone far enough. And if A levels can do that, then you know that's not good news for them because A levels, as important they are to you when you're taking them, are not the most important thing <laughs> in the world. And so if people can be that politically motivated about something like that, then hopefully, um, which I, I'm not saying they're wrong about, they are correct about. Um, then hopefully we can we can make changes where necessary as well but you know it's the world's an unpleasant place in so many ways so we can only have hope so finally the big question we always ask our guests to nominate and ask another celebrity to be a future guest oh you have enjoyed tonight's experience which we hope you have yes who would you like to nominate tonight any comedy friends maybe richard osmond and- you know i think richard osmond was the who, who came to mind straight away he's a great guy i'm sure he would do it if you asked him uh he's very interesting uh he's very charming he's quite rude but i'm sure he would rein it in for you guys i've managed to do okay nearly swore a couple of times but i managed to swerve away uh and <laughs> um i think richard would be great um have you had sarah pascoe is a fantastic uh comedian and thinker she'd be a great person to have on um and i'm sure she would do it um uh yeah lots of lots there's lots there's a lot of people my favorite i mean bob mortimer is one of my favorite guests i've had i know you'd have fun with him um and uh, yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot of people really. If I get down to it, Greg Davis from Taskmaster, but you know, good luck getting hold of him. <laughs> but yeah, one I'd say let's go for Richard Osman. Let's get him on. That you could, you know, get him on would be very appreciated. I'm sure I could. I'm sure I could have a word with him. Land. He's got a book out, so you know, he'll do anything to publicize that. That's what we're like. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening. No, you thank you. Well done. And entertaining us all. We've really loved hearing about your comedy career, podcasting, and all the campaigns you've supported. Good luck with all that comes next, and we look forward to seeing you on Taskmaster in October. Terrific. In the meantime, we look forward to listening to more podcasts. Stay safe. Send our love to you and your family. Take care, and we hope to see you again too. Thanks very much, Abby. Great job. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. All right. Bye-bye. And that's it. Thank you to everyone for tuning in this evening and yet again for being a part of history. Thank you so much for listening to Jersey Virtual. We are live. Take care of yourselves and stay safe and we shall see you again soon.